I'm Gregory Berg. We are replaying this morning show interview from 2009 in observance of Memorial Day. I hold in my hands a profoundly moving book called Soldier from the War Returning, The Greatest Generation's Troubled Homecoming from World War II. The author of the book is Thomas Childers. He writes this book from a a very personal perspective in, in one way, in that his father was a veteran of the Second World War and returned from that conflict, as so many soldiers did, scarred uh, in both outward and inward ways. And uh, Thomas Childers uh, found himself moved to write a book not only about his own father and uh, the troubles which he had in coming to terms with what he had seen and experienced and lost in the, the Second World War, but also of that largely untold or at least undertold story of, of other veterans from that conflict, from that generation. And uh, so he has studied this and spoken with uh, families and soldiers, veterans, touched by this experience, and decided to tell the story of three returning soldiers in, uh, in painstaking and painful detail in a book which ultimately is so moving. Again, it's called Soldier from the War Returning, The Greatest Generation's Troubled Homecoming from World War II. The author, Thomas Childers, is the Sheldon and Lucy Hackney Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania, and he has written extensively on the Third Reich and uh, the Second World War, including books called In the Shadows of War and Wings of Mourning. This book is published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And Thomas Childers, we welcome you to the morning show. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm a little intrigued. I'm intrigued by a lot of things. But one of the things I want to ask you is, in light of the other books which you have already written about, uh, the Second World War, five books were told before this one. Um, I'm kind of wondering about the timing of this book. Uh, in a sense, because your, your life was so powerfully touched by this particular experience of your father and his emotional scars. Um, in some respects, it's almost surprising that this wasn't the first book you wrote about the Second World War. I'm wondering if you could just un- untie that question for us a little bit of maybe why now or why under these particular circumstances you find yourself compelled to look at the war experience in this particular way? Well, it's a very good question. Um, I began uh, what I thought was going to be a short detour from the work that I'd been doing uh, as a professional historian coming out of graduate school, which was about the rise of the Nazis in Germany. Uh, And... um, in 19, I had uh, a, a very good answer I would give if people asked me, "How did you? Are you are you of German background? No, uh, Jewish? No. Um, how did you come to make the Nazis and, and Third Reich the center of your professional life?" And I had an answer I would give. It was professional. It was scholarly. It was uh, impeccably intellectual. And <laughs> I think I almost believed it myself. But in 1991, my grandmother passed away. Uh, and I was called down to Tennessee, I'm from just out, was originally from just outside of Chattanooga, uh, to sort out her things. And when I was down there, I found 
over 300 letters uh, written by my uncle Howard, uh, whose portrait hung over the mantelpiece. <clears throat> and um, those letters began when he went off to college, and the last one was written on April 21st, 1945, which I came to realize was the day he was killed. Um, he was killed on the last American bomber that was shot down over Germany in the Second World War. The family got the missing in action telegram on uh, VE Day uh, and never really got over it. Uh, it was just a, a crushing, crushing uh, emotional blow. And as you point out in your book, and as you just stated, but I want to make sure our listeners understand, they received this horrible news on the day that most of the country is deliriously celebrating the end of the war in Europe. I mean, we can scarcely imagine a more tragic scenario than that. That's absolutely right. The church bells were ringing, car horns blaring in the street. Um, everyone was jubilant. They had been receiving letters from Howard, <clears throat> was uh, my uncle's name. Uh, he was close to the completion of his tour of flying missions. He was in the 8th Air Force. Uh, and then to get this telegram, and then uh, roughly six weeks later, uh, a telegram confirming that he had, in fact, been killed in action. Um, so in 1991, when I found these letters, I began doing research. I thought, well, I'm a there was a, a mystery surrounding it. They never really got very many details about how he had died. And uh, I think, to be honest, I think they, even into the, 90, into the 50s, still somehow held out some irrational hope that he was somehow alive, that he hadn't been killed. Um, so I thought, well, I can, I can go find some things out. I can find out what happened on that last mission. So I began what I thought was, I wasn't even thinking of writing a book. I was going to solve a family mystery uh, and discovered that I was in over my head, that I found all sorts of things that uh, deepened the mystery rather than solved it. And so I wound up going to Germany. I found eyewitnesses to the plane crash and so on. So that, that's what set me off. Mm. Uh, and once I, and I, I, as I began to write that book, uh, I realized that uh, what I really wanted to convey um, was not what a, a standard professional historical treatment would do with footnotes and, and all the sorts of things that acted, I thought, as a, as a distancing mechanism. I wanted people, readers, to feel something of that crushing sense of loss that the families of this crew felt in 1945 and forever after. And so I wrote, I did the research exactly the same way, scrupulous way that I would do uh, a scholarly book, but I wrote the book uh, using novelistic techniques. Uh, no footnotes. I took things written in letters and transformed them into conversations. Um, and w having finished that book, um, this set me off in a whole new direction about writing history. And I think it took me until uh, this century uh, to be able to deal with uh, the problems within the family. I also have to say uh, is that my father died in 1994, my mother died in 2000, and uh, it's a book that I think they would have been they would have been um, embarrassed uh, to see in public, but I think they would say ultimately, at least I hope they would, it's the truth. Hmm. This journey that you took 
seems to also echo uh, something that you or someone you saw early in your life. You, you begin the introduction to the book by talking about someone that you would see quite often in the little town in East Tennessee where you grew up. You talk of a young man of good family, my mother told me, who could be seen most any day, summer or winter, from sunup to dusk, drifting down the dusty streets as if in a trance. Uh, tell us more about this man whom you never name, but who obviously made something of an impression on you. Yes, um, he, uh, as, as, I, as you just read, uh, he could be seen every single day, summer, winter, uh, sunup to sundown, walking through the streets of this little town. He would walk up to each telephone pole uh, and reach out to touch it, uh, that, that silver plaque that is on telephone poles, often oval-shaped, that gives a serial number. He would reach up and touch it with his fingertips uh, and then move on to the next and the next and the next. Um, children sometimes would follow him through the streets, uh, making fun of him. Uh, uh, but as my mother always said to me, he was such a bright boy, uh, but he was never the same after the war. As a child, this didn't mean much to me, uh, but I later discovered that he had, in fact, been the valedictorian of the local high school, uh, seen as uh, one of the teachers said, the only true genius I've ever taught, uh, went off in the Second World War. There were conflicting stories of what had happened to him, but he came back a shattered, uh, a shattered man. As I say in the book, he left town as a golden boy and came home a ghost. Hmm. And, and I have to say, I think that uh, probably every city, neighborhood, every town in America had someone, maybe not as extreme as that, but someone like this. Right. You write, in the early 1970s, he could still be seen shuffling along the streets. He had by then become a permanent presence in the social topography of the town, an unsettling human artifact for those who chose to remember of a now distant war and its lingering incalculable costs. How striking for you now to be writing this book, which uh, in, in many respects uh, is, is an echo of, of, of this particular man and a story the details of which we cannot possibly know by now, but... Uh, in a, in a strange sort of way, writing this book is one way for you to address some of those questions. Well, that's right. Um, I was surrounded my mother. My mother saying uh, when we would encounter uh, Mr. Westerberg um, on the streets, would say he was never the same after the war. And as I grew older, I began to realize that that kind of statement, he was never the same after the war, was something I heard quite a lot. Uh, in this little town, uh, and uh, I wanted to, to somehow address that to see if what I had seen in my family and in the family of my close friends uh, and others around town was somehow peculiar or whether it was a more common experience. Hmm. I have to say that as I was writing the book, uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer uh, ran a story about the research and uh, it was syndicated nationally, 
And I was literally deluged with people my age. I'm 62, born after, right after the war, uh, writing in to talk about the experiences uh, of their childhood with fathers of this greatest generation who had had troubles, troubles that didn't often appear on the surface, uh, but were buried. The men thought safely buried, but would leach out in all sorts of destructive ways. We're speaking with Thomas Childers. We're talking about his book, Soldier from the War Returning, The Greatest Generation's Troubled Homecoming from World War II. Let's talk for a moment about the context in which you felt compelled to tell this story. Uh, you, you tell us that in, in, in the 1990s there was a real surge in, in uh, interest amongst the public about the Second World War as we cycled through that 50th anniversary and eventually to the 60th anniversary and all kinds of books and films and television programs, speaker series and so on. And you write, despite all the attention lavished on the Second World War and the men and women who experienced it, a curious silence lingers over what for many was the last great battle of the war. That battle was not fought on the fields of Europe or on the jungle islands and coral atolls of the South Pacific, but on the main streets of American towns and in big city neighborhoods, sometimes in highly public places, um, hospitals and courtrooms, but more often in parlors, kitchens, and bedrooms buried in the deepest personal privacy, as many veterans would quickly discover the last daunting challenge of the war for those fortunate enough to survive it was coming home. One of the things that was most striking as I read your introduction is how, uh, for whatever silence indeed there has been about this in recent years, there was not all that much silence at the time. You apparently went back and found all kinds of things which were written about this phenomenon of the troubled veteran returning home. Uh, tell us what you discovered as you went back through newspapers and magazines uh, of, of the war years and those years immediately after the war ended? Well, I think that, uh, that citizens of that period would be absolutely astonished uh, to, to hear this uh, notion of the greatest generation coming home healthy, happy, and well-adjusted, and nobody having trouble. If you look at Time Magazine, Newsweek, Collier's, Saturday Evening Post, Reader's Digest, and so on, not to mention the veterans' magazines and women's magazines, which are a real source of, uh, of information about troubled relationships, uh, you find enormous concern, anxiety, about what was going to happen when these 16 million men came home. Uh, there were what we would now call self-help books written by the dozen, how to deal with your veteran husband, son, fiancé, and so on. Um, there were there was considerable fear that uh, these men would come home brutalized and violent, and that they might set off a, a crime wave. One of, a prominent Boston newspaper ran a headline that said, "Will your son come home a killer?" Um, stories with you know, what will you do if he comes home distant? What will he do if he comes home nervous? Um, this wave of writing about what they called readjustment began in 1945 when it, was, when it was clear the war was going to be over sometime relatively soon and that the, uh, these men would be coming home. 
uh, that wave crested in 1946, and it was filled with stories, uh, newspaper stories, magazine stories, newsreels about troubled veterans, uh, and also reflected in uh, films and uh, novels from the period. Um, I think film noir, uh, films of that genre, uh, one of the standard characters was the troubled veteran, often the psychopath. Um, same with same with uh, fiction. There was a very powerful film and a very successful film called The Best Years of Our Lives uh, that appeared in 1946, won numerous Academy Awards, one for Best Picture, about, that traced the lives of three veterans, uh, one of whom had lost both his arms below the elbow, uh, another who had we would call post-traumatic stress disorder. And the third was a family man with a successful businessman, but who came back with a drinking problem. It was a very dark film for that period, uh, but one that was quite consistent with with the public response. Hmm. I wonder if we could just take a moment and talk about uh, Tom Brokaw's book, The, The Greatest Generation, you quote a paragraph from it uh, in your book's introduction, and, and you use that book as kind of an indication of uh, what you call at one point this reassuring, uncomplicated portrait that has been repeated so often in public commemorations and memorial addresses that it has become almost an incantation more liturgical than historical. And again, that, that notion of that, that by and large most veterans returned from the Second World War largely un, untroubled. Do you mind if I read the paragraph that you quote? No, not at all. Um, this, is what, this is, again, from Brokaw's book. When the war was over, the men and women who had been involved in uniform and in civilian capacities joined in joyous and short-lived celebrations, then immediately began the task of rebuilding their lives in the world they wanted. They were mature beyond their years, tempered by what they had been through, disciplined by their military training and sacrifices. They married in record numbers and gave birth to another distinctive generation, the baby boomers. They stayed true to their values of personal responsibilities, duty, honor, faith. They were battle-scarred and exhausted, but oh so happy and relieved to be home. The war had taught them what mattered most in the lives they wanted now to settle down and live. is, uh, it's been a long time since I read that book. I have read that book, but I'm trying to remember. Uh, it, it seems inconceivable that a journalist of the quality of Tom Brokaw uh, would not address, to some extent, uh, the, the harsher realities that are also part of this, this, this experience. Uh, is that really not to be found in the pages of that book, or is it just such a vague sidelight that it doesn't do this part of the reality justice? Well, I think you have to remember, in, in, uh, for Brokaw, he wrote the book in the 90s, as you say, in the, in the midst of these 50-year anniversaries of the Second World War. And it is indeed an occupational hazard. If you interview men from that generation, uh, they are, in many cases, all the things he says, unassuming, uh, they don't posture about their wartime experiences, and so on. Um, but... Uh, it's much easier to get men to talk about their lives. You might get them to talk about their war experiences. It's not easy, but you can. Uh, But it's another thing entirely to get men to talk or their families to talk about um, drinking problems, uh, infidelity, uh, uh, rages, uh, 
the sorts of psychological problems that so many men had. So in some ways, uh, the people that Tom Brokaw was, was writing about were a sort of self-selective group. Um, so I think in that sense, he, he was interested in paying homage to this generation. And I have to say, I, I want to be clear about this, that I think those men and women deserve all of the accolades and all the tributes they receive. But in some ways, it seems to me that that portrait sells them short and sets up an impossible standard for veterans today. Um, when you consider that over a million psychological, ca- the United States suffered over a million uh, psychiatric casualties during the Second World War, uh, that on Okinawa alone, there were 26,000 uh, psychiatric casualties in this last big battle in the Pacific of the Second World War, and that by 1947, uh, over half of the beds in VA hospitals were occupied by men suffering from uh, what they call psychoneurotic disorders. Uh, these are, you know, these are very powerful, uh, I think, bits of evidence about the real cost of war. Uh, I, I also have to say, you know, I, I interviewed dozens and dozens of veterans and their families. I, I went either electronically or in person to the numerous oral history projects around the country, one of the best of which, by the way, is in Madison uh, at the uh, Wisconsin Veterans Museum and Research Center. And you find that in these oral history projects, asking men to tell about their experiences, um, the interviewers, even the very good ones, will bump up against you know what happened to you when you came home, and there will be hints in what the men are saying that suggest that there was some difficulty. Sometimes they're very frank, but, but mostly just sort of hints. And the interviewers almost invariably, once they bump into this, discreetly back away uh, and don't, don't follow it up. So I want to ask a very distinguished historian of the Second World War and a man who had um, made a career of interviewing veterans if he ever planned to write a book about uh, what happened when the GIs came home. And his answer was revealing. He said, um, well, I, he thought about it, but, you know, it would just be too personal, wouldn't it? Hmm. And particularly too personal for comfort for uh, for these particular veterans uh, out of that generation where sharing about those sorts of things uh, is not what they were accustomed to. Right. You, it wasn't a generation, for all of its virtues, it wasn't a generation that was encouraged to talk about their feelings. Uh, it didn't fit the cultural sense of, uh, you know, you just suck it up, uh, get on with things. And, you know, most of these men did. The three families that I follow were men who conformed very much to this sort of greatest generation storyline, at least on the surface. They were born into modest circumstances. They went into the service. They came out. Uh, they had families, they built careers, they were, by almost any objective measure, successful people. But, and they carried their wounds for the most part on the inside, but in a way that did, in fact, as I said, leach out uh, in, in, in devastating ways. You write this in the introduction. Um, I had been hearing from dozens of veterans and their families for 10 years. Although the men themselves were sometimes initially hesitant, sometimes embarrassed, they finally spoke up, moments of rare self-revelation. Wives and grown children were often more forthcoming. 
adding immeasurably to the story. We had only to scratch the surface and the memories many suppressed for half a century came tumbling out. We talked about the war and its impact on their subsequent lives and the conversations became brutally frank and cathartic. I wonder if you had particular means by which uh, you were able to break through some of those walls of initial resistance uh, when it came to the veterans themselves. Uh, I suppose in some cases those walls never did really come down. But in other cases, I mean, did you go about this in any particular way to try to get at the heart of some of these things that veterans might really find difficult to, uh, to reveal? Well, I'd had a good deal of experience interviewing veterans. I began with Wings of Morning, the story of my uncle's air crew, where I'd interviewed dozens of 8th Air Force flyers. So I had some sense. I was very familiar. I'm very comfortable with men of, of that generation. My father, of course, was uh, of that generation. So I, I, And I, as a historian, I knew the context. Often if you have a historical context, you know where the 36th Infantry Division went. Uh, then... What I often would do would come at things obliquely, that is, not a direct question, did you have trouble when you came home, but to, to circle around it uh, and let let their story develop. I have to also say that having come from a family myself that had difficulties, uh, I, was, I often would say something about those first, uh, and this would often loosen things up. It was very... It was not uncommon, let me say this, in interviews, uh, often done with a wife or, a, what can I say, a child. They're, you know, in their 60s now. Um, uh, you know, the, the man might begin by saying, well, yeah, I was a little, you know, I was a little screwed up when I came home, but, you know, we got on. And the wife would say, you know, Harry, think, and would, would coax him uh, or the, the son or daughter. Uh, with whom I would often talk separate from the from the veteran father, uh, would you know would say, well, he says he was okay, but and then would tell me things, and then it just evolved. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say all these interviews were successful. Sometimes men clammed up, but that was uncommon. I found, in fact, most of these men and their families actually seemed to me to want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Once once the ice was broken. We're speaking with Thomas Childers. We're talking about his book, Soldier from the War Returning. Your ultimate decision was to frame this book around the story of three specific soldiers returning from the Second World War uh, and experiencing different kinds of difficulty, just as for each of them, their experience uh, fighting in Europe had been different i mean each of them experiencing a different sort of 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 trauma tell us a little bit and and we should mention one of them was your own father uh aside from that tell us how you came to uh embrace these three particular stories as the framework for your book well one of the reasons for doing so was that um with my own family I was a witness. I, I viewed these things growing up. Uh, I knew them. Uh, and I talked about them with my father and my mother. I'm an only child. They shared more with me than, than uh, often made me comfortable. Uh, so I knew that story very, very well. Also, 
my father had been a on the ground in the Eighth Air Force. He had my parents had been married for about a year when he was drafted, went overseas, spent two years away, two years in which they did not hear each other's voice, uh, obviously didn't see each other. Um, they corresponded uh, intensely, but it was a strange correspondence. If you read letters from that period, it, it took a week to ten days to sometimes two weeks, sometimes longer for the mail to get through. And so it wasn't possible to have any kind of dialogue. It was sort of you wrote, I'm okay, I hope you're okay, sort of letters. So when he came back, uh, he and my mother were strangers, and he came back to a family consumed uh, with grief over the death of Howard, uh, my mother's brother. Uh, my best friend's father, uh, Willis Allen, uh, was a handsome man. It's his picture that is on the cover of the book. A tall, lanky guy who loved to walk and dance. Uh, was in the 36th Infantry Division, landed at Salerno, fought his way up the Italian peninsula, landed in Operation Anvil in southern France, and then on a night in December 1944, a single artillery shell exploded, killed everybody in the trench, all of his, his uh, half-track crew, eight other men, uh, and blew one of his right leg off, severed it, and left the other so mangled that it had to be amputated that same night. Uh, he then would spend 18 months uh, in grueling rehab, uh, in operations and rehab in the United States, and then went back to a wife and small child, the child he'd seen only once before going overseas. Um, I grew up around Willis Allen, um, spent a lot of time at their house, uh, and he was a great guy by day, uh, a lot of fun to be around, played the guitar, uh, could do anything with his hands, but at night... Uh, he was subject to absolutely uncontrollable rages, raging at his wife, at his uh, daughter. My friend Gary and I would sometimes barricade the door to Gary's bedroom uh, so that Willis couldn't get in. And then sometimes we jumped out of the bedroom window to get away. Uh, the next day, he'd be fine. Um, the third, so I knew this family very well. And Judy, Gary's older sister, uh, and Willis, who's still alive, uh, was, they were willing to talk about these things. I was almost a family member. Hmm. And then the third person was Michael Gold, a man that I met much later in life, uh, in fact, only about six years ago. Um, uh, Michael's from the New York City area. Uh, like Willis and my father, Tom, grew up in very modest circumstances, uh, was a flyer in the Second World War. His bomber was shot down over Germany uh, in January of 1944. He spent the rest of the war, about 15 months, in a German prisoner of war camp where he almost froze to death and then toward the end almost starved to death. Uh, he was Jewish, and so um, th that added, he was put into a ghetto barracks in the camp, adding another whole layer of trauma. Michael came back from the war, uh, didn't seem to miss a beat. Uh, went to Cornell, graduated from Columbia, uh, got a medical uh, got a degree uh, from Rochester, and became an extraordinarily successful OBGYN. So Michael's a brilliant man. Um, uh, but 
he was subject to outbursts of anger that terrified uh, his parents, his younger brother, uh, usually having to do with food. The tripwire was often food, spilled milk, children that wouldn't eat all of their food. Um, and as a consequence, uh, his marriage dissolved in the 1970s. Uh, he was estranged from his children. Uh, and in his 70s, he was diagnosed with chronic post-traumatic stress disorder. One of the things that is so striking is uh, is his inability, or was it unwillingness, or a little of both, uh, to really connect the dots between what he had experienced in the war and the terrible nightmares that assailed him with the difficulties that uh, sort of over, overtook his life. Uh, I mean, we, we can more easily understand that when someone knows very little of science and medical science in particular. And, uh, but, but this is someone where we sort of feel like he should have known that, that, uh, that there was some kind of connection and that these nightmares he was experiencing had a lot to do with the, the other troubles in his life. Can you help us understand that? Well, I can try. Uh, it's a mystery to Michael in many ways. Um, but in some ways, I think his case was, is typical. Certainly the VA has seen now from the 1990s onward more and more men of that generation showing up with undiagnosed cases of chronic post-traumatic stress disorder. But as you say, Michael, being a very smart man and a physician, seemed to, you would think, yes, he should have known. He never talked about his nightmares. People knew he had them, but it was just not discussed. He threw himself into his work. He was a workaholic. This is, by the way, also one of the, one of the ways that a great many men uh, uh, coped uh, with uh, their troubles past from the war was simply to not never acknowledge it, throw themselves into work. Uh, they were often people that were away from family. This was the case with Michael. He was a doctor. He had a good reason to be. Um, but he, he said when he was diagnosed that, that, you know, it was like scales falling from his eyes, that he, he knew the symptoms of PTSD, uh, but he thought, you know, well, that's something that these younger guys from Vietnam have. Nobody in my generation has this. It's in a sense almost as though uh, he had all along believed the hype. I mean, kind of what we were talking about, about the, 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 the more general ways in which this generation had been generalized and couldn't imagine that he would be, in a sense, one of the exceptions to that story. Yes, that's right. Um, I think, too, that he, you know, that generation of men did not talk about their feelings very much. They certainly weren't encouraged to. And so he buried it. His way of coping was to simply bury it as deeply as he possibly could, never acknowledge it. Uh, he assumed quietly uh, that all better, of course, everybody has nightmares. Everybody who was in the war has nightmares. There's nothing unusual about this, no reason to get excited. Uh, he never connected the outbursts of anger uh, with uh, some sort of psychological syndrome. Um, 
even though, as I said, the tripwire was very frequently, in fact, almost always food. Um, and when he was angry, he was really bellicose. Uh, he could go from zero to 60 on the anger uh, scale in, in almost no time. And then it would suddenly be over, as if it never happened. Hmm. Um, and as he has discovered, this also is uh, quite, quite consistent. As you tell these stories, uh, one of the things that is really striking is of how there really were efforts made to uh, ease the transition of veterans returning from the war. I mean, it is not as though the assumption was blithely made by, by the military that the transition was going to be simple. Uh, and and th- there really were all kinds of things put in place, I mean, far more than I really kind of thought that there would be uh, to, to help with this transition, but clearly not enough. Um, for instance, when you, you dis- describe the, the plight of, 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 of veterans uh, in VA hospitals, that depending on where you were, you might be receiving very, very fine care or care that uh, in no way was sufficient. Uh, can you talk a moment about that kind of mixed picture? Well, I think actually it's quite it's it's not unlike the situation today. Um, the Veterans Administration, the Army, the military uh, certainly realized there was going to be a problem uh, during the war. There were attempts to build uh, and certainly money um, uh, allocated to build more hospitals. Uh, and to improve the ones that existed. But by the end of the war, only a fraction of those actually were in place. Um, There was a shortage of doctors. As soon as the war was over, uh, men, uh, physicians who had been in the military, uh, were out of the military. It was difficult to get physicians. And if we're talking about psychiatric care, uh, the, the, the therapeutic community was simply overwhelmed by the number of cases. Uh, so, despite the GI Bill, which was a tremendous piece of legislation and certainly helped in many ways, and despite the attention, and certainly the American Legion and the VFW pounded away on this theme, very much the way we see veterans' organizations do today, uh, but what you found was a great deal of public uh, support um, until it came time to actually spend the money on it to do it. One of the uh, interesting, uh, one of the interesting challenges was, of course, as you've already touched on, uh, for adequate resources and attention to be given to those veterans who came back, not so much with with physical scars. Of course, that was a serious enough challenge in and of itself. But uh, all of these veterans who uh, ultimately were designated as NP, neuropsychiatric casualties. You tell us more than 40% of all Army medical discharges were NP cases, mm-hmm. and that by 1947, more than half the beds in VA hospitals were occupied by men suffering from some sort of psychoneurotic disorder. And of course, this designation of NP was something that <laughs> nobody wanted uh, on their record. Uh, to what extent were were uh, were the 
practices in place that could give any kind of uh, adequate help to these veterans with these particular problems. I think we tend to jump to the conclusion that that uh, we know so much more about such things now. Uh, you paint kind of a complicated picture of what the response was to this particular problem. Well, as you say, nobody wanted to have NP on his discharge papers. Um, on the one hand, there was... Uh, a recognition on the part of the public that there were men who were going to come back, quote, nervous. Um, but at the same time, there was a good deal of real ins- insensitivity about what that, what that actually meant. There were psychiatric hospitals. Uh, but I think the, the military discovered, and this is something that is very true today, as a, ran, a recent RAND Corporation uh, documented about, about Iraq and Afghanistan, is that the number of cases where the military has actually intervened and people have gotten counseling is a fraction of the number of soldiers who actually need it. That most veterans don't seek it. Uh, they don't want the stigma attached to it. They turn to family uh, or to the church or the community, and all of those things are very important, very, very important. But they also need professional uh, therapeutic care. I mean, one of the things that that um, in, one reads through the official army um, uh, papers about what these uh, psychiatric evaluations did. Men were supposed to get an evaluation as they went in, and then when they came out, psychiatric evaluations. But as uh, I have Michael Gold's psychiatric evaluations, as he says, and he told me when he was inducted on Staten Island uh, in 1942, uh, his psychiatric evaluation consisted of a single question, do you masturbate? When he came out of a prison camp at the end of the war after 15 months in Stalag Book 1, he had another thoroughgoing psychiatric evaluation. One question, do you masturbate? Hmm. When you write about Michael and uh, the nightmares that afflicted him really for all of his life after the war uh this is how you describe the uh, sort of insistent presence of these nightmares no matter where he went or how much distance he put between himself and the war the dreams always tracked him down they were clever and tenacious these dreams waiting until his guard was down when all seemed well the surface of his life no more ruffled than a backwoods pond they laid ambushes, catching him out at his most vulnerable. That's certainly a, a disturbing picture you, you, you paint there. Uh, and, of course, this was a, a sad reality not only for Michael, but uh, for many, many other veterans. Yes. The, the number of men who uh, would say, yes, I'm, I'm fine, I was fine at the end of the war, talk about having nightmares sometimes for 10, 20, sometimes years, sometimes even longer, uh, that these things come back. Um, and men found different ways of coping. Michael's, I think, was probably the most typical, which was that to say to himself, everybody has these. There's no point in talking about it. He didn't talk about it. He was married for over 20 years and never once did he and his wife talk about the fact that he would wind up uh, crying, uh, his legs bicycling under the covers, uh, 
never want to talk about these nightmares. Hmm. Uh, and I think that was quite a quite a common uh, common reaction. Hmm. One of the most painful aspects of your parents' story is the whole matter of uncertainty and lack of trust. Your mother uh, just having this disconcerting sense, even while your your dad was still in Europe, uh, that something had changed about him, not even drastically or dramatically, but subtle shifts in the way he expressed himself, what he talked about in his letters, how his letters became less frequent and so on. And she never could quite shake this uneasy sense that he was hiding something or that something had shifted in, in, in who he was. And uh, I think that's an important story, too. And, of course, ultimately, there are, there are more dramatic ways in which uh, he clearly had changed. But, but even when somebody in very subtle ways uh, changes, in ways that are not frightening but just make us uneasy, that in and of itself can be a source of great difficulty uh, in a relationship like marriage. Yes, and it certainly was in my parents' case. Uh, exacerbated, of course, by the fact that they, they couldn't speak. She couldn't, she couldn't say, you know, Tom, what, what's bothering you? Something seems to have changed. She may have written it, but as I said, you know, the, the, the moving of letters back and forth across the Atlantic made a real dialogue impossible. Um, she was convinced that something was wrong, that he had changed, and then when he returned home, uh, you know, having not seen each other in in two years, um, they had to get to know one another all over again. And my father came back to a family absolutely consumed with grief. Uh, they had just gotten word about Howard. Howard, by the way, was a really close friend of my father's. He was very, he was shattered by uh, Howard's uh, loss as well. But he'd been living for two years in a combat zone. Uh, he'd had friends, very close friends, die. Uh, he, every morning, watched the planes take off uh, and then counted them when they came back. Death was a fact of life uh, uh, for the 390th bomb group. Uh, and so when he came back, he, he displayed uh, ten, uh, characteristics that were quite typical. One was uh, to my mother, Mildred. He seemed detached. He seemed... Uh, somewhat coarse in dealing with the loss of Howard. They kept holding out hope that he, Howard was alive. My dad had seen too much. He he knew. Um, and so uh, after a while being around the family, trying to say supportive things, uh, he came down, I think, with what we would now call survivor guilt. He was back. Howard wasn't. Hmm. Um, and adding to their problems was that my mother uh, found the letter which in his, his barracks bag which seemed to, to hint to her that he had had uh, an affair with a woman in England during his two years there. He denied it. Uh, he could never convince her that this was not the case. Um, but I think for my mother in 1945, she's the one, not so much my father. She had post-traumatic stress disorder. Hmm. The war, to her, two things had happened. One was this inexplicable loss of her brother, even though she knew other families had suffered a loss. 
Howard was gone. And then second, back comes her husband, to whom she had written every single day for two years while he was away, and uh, she believed that he had uh, had this adulterous affair. So for her, these two things seemed to fuse in her mind. And it really haunted their lives uh, ever after. In fact, at one point, she, in August of 1945, in a clash that would be typical of their lives forever, she said to him in anguish, why have you come back and Howard didn't? Hmm. You say that was a sentence which would hang over them for the rest of their lives. I want to read a moment from the introduction, which I think so so well sums up the importance of, of this particular story. I mean, the story of all three of these men in your whole book. You say what emerges from these stories is a darker, more troubled, but also more human tale than the one that emanates from today's memorials. They are stories of heartbreak and trauma and weakness, but also of courage and endurance and humanity. They do not diminish the wartime generation's accomplishments, but they do suggest that the price these men paid was far higher, the toll exacted from them and their families far greater, and their struggles far more protracted than the glossy tributes to the greatest generation would have us believe. The book is Soldier from the War Returning, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, Thomas Childers, I thank you for writing this remarkable book and for joining me today on The Morning Show. Well, thank you very much.